You are listening to the official podcast of the Mission Redlands. We are a growing community living out God's radical love. Or is God an angry God? Show, show of hands, I've struggled with it throughout my whole life, right? You struggle with that, the, the image of an angry God? I know I have. Uh, as a young Catholic, my thought process was, he's angry at me, and then when I go to confession, he's not angry, but he keeps a stern eye on me, you know what I mean? <laughs> That's how I felt as a young Catholic was, yeah, um, he's angry at me most of the time, and then when I finally go to confession, he's not angry, but he's just keeping an eye on me, like, all right, you're good to go. And, and that's not the image of God in the Bible, by far. It is just not the image. And, and it, this may come as a shocker, because we, we hear the, the Old Testament, for example, is the Testament where God is angry. Sometimes we hear things like that. But when we look at the Bible and we understand one, what his anger is, and two, how he gets to that point, it's a vastly different image than what we have in our heads. This is what I've kind of been struggling with, or not struggling with, but just thinking about recently uh, as I read some material and listened to some podcasts from some theologians that, that I like, and I was really challenged to further revisit the image. I realized that I was mostly done with the image of an angry God, but that I still had work to do. See, we get an image in our heads of God as an angry God when the scriptures in both the Old and New Testament give us a totally opposite perspective, in fact. That's the total opposite. This may come as a shock to you. Make no mistake. God is just, and thus injustice does cause anger. Just not the way we might think his anger is. We tend to view his anger like our own anger. That's part of the problem. So let's see what the Bible's narrative says. Let's see from Old Testament to New Testament, what is the Bible constantly saying about God, who he is, and what's this whole thing, anger or wrath, right, that sometimes appears in the Bible. Point number one, if you're taking notes, for those of you online at your homes or for those of you here in-house, point number one is that, in fact, the Bible's most prominent description regarding anger in the Bible in the Old Testament is that God is slow to anger. God is slow to anger. Exodus 34, 6 uh, take the New Living Translation, for example. It says that the Lord passed in front of Moses calling out, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. That's not an angry, stern God. The God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. That's in the New Living Translation. If you use ESV also, I like both. In the ESV, it usually says instead of unfailing love, steadfast love. They're interchangeable. They mean the same thing. It never fails. Not an angry God. In fact, a unfailing, loving you God. He never fails to love you. That's the image that's constantly in the Bible. Now, if you, if you don't believe me, at first you might think like this is shocking news. Well, first and foremost, for the Hebrew nation, um, Exodus 34, 6 was kind of like, it was a, a mantra, if you will, of who Yahweh is. 
But it's all over the place. In Nehemiah 9.17, part of the verse reads, but you are a God ready to forgive. That's going to be important. Make note of that later. Ready to forgive. Gracious and merciful. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. There it is again. Psalm 86.15, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. A lot of these aren't going to be in the screen because they just keep repeating, okay? The Old Testament authors keep repeating this because this is who they know God is, okay? So again, Psalm 86.15 says, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He is faithful, regardless of how unfaithful you may be. Psalm 103, 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Okay, God, I get it. You're, 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 you're really not the type that's angry, actually. That's not a good description of who you are. Psalm 145, 8, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Okay, I get it, God. Joel 2, verses 12 through 13. In Joel, by the way, this is, this, this is just a side note. In Joel... God is talking about the coming day of the Lord, judgment, right? And so he knows that these consequences of sin are coming. They're coming. But he's, here's what God is doing. If he weren't angry to God, he'd just be like, I'm not going to even tell you when I'm coming and I'm going to smack you, right? But that's not what God does. God is constantly calling us away from the spiritual consequences of our sin, which is the wrath of God. We'll get to that later, but... Here's what God says in Joel to the Israelites regarding this coming day. He says, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. This is God, slow to anger, loving. He's very loving. Here's the problem. We conflate our anger with God's anger, and God's anger is very different from ours. You want to see how we think of God's anger in someone else? Just think of Jonah, who's called to preach to the Ninevites over and over again, right? He's, He's supposed to go to the Ninevites and call them to repent. And Jonah is actually who we think God is. Jonah's like, no, no, they should get what's coming to them. They should get what's coming to them, right? That's who we think God is. Jonah is upset at God because he says, oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? I knew that you are gracious, that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. This is after the Ninevites finally repent. God is slow to anger. Come on, Ninevites, repent. I don't want the spiritual consequences of your sin to, to, to engulf you. Come on, repent. I, I love you. I'm waiting. I'm watching in the horizon for your return. Jonah is the image of the angry God that we get. Jonah wanted them to get what they deserved. Isn't that funny? So is God angry? Is God an angry God? Well, the Bible says, actually, ontologically, which means it's his very nature. By very nature, God is love. That's point number two. God is love. 
In 1 John 4, 8, it says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. It doesn't say God is angry. It says God is love. He's abounding in steadfast love, in unfailing love. So, I mean, just, just think about that. If God is love, allow me to switch here to my Bible here to look it up because I don't have it prepared. But just go to 1 Corinthians 13 for a moment, right? Just go to 1 Corinthians 13. That's the, the, the wedding passage, right? <laughs> which is not really supposed to be about weddings. I mean, it can be. God bless your marriage to look like this, but it's even more than marriages. It's for everything. If God is love, why don't you take 1 Corinthians 13 and replace love with God? Verse 4, God is patient and kind. God does not envy or boast. God is not arrogant or rude does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, so God bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. God's love never ends for you. That's who God is. God is love. So where then is God's anger? Come on, Ricardo, you, you can't just neglect the fact that there, God does have a wrath, an anger. The Bible speaks about it. And of course, we have to understand that there is injustice and evil, sin, wickedness in the world. And so God's wrath is, of course, the just response to that. But it is still different than what we visualize. See, God's wrath, this is the next point, and we're going to, we're going to, this is probably where we need to unpack it most because this is what's challenging me today, okay? This is where I am right now in my, my quiet time. God's wrath is when God gives us up to our own sinful persistence. He finally lets us go in our sinful direction, which is itself spiritually destructive. So the image is you're holding on to God and pulling in your direction. You're trying to go your way. And God is like, no, no, no. Finally, God in his wrath, oh, let's go. That's where you want to go? You're going to see what you're going to reap. Not because I'm going to smack you, right? I'm not waiting around to smack you like catch you at failing in my rules. But the spiritual consequence of insisting in our way and not giving God his worthy worship is that God gives us up. God gives us up. He lets us go in our own direction. And that is itself spiritually destructive. Both N.T. Wright and Tim Keller, two very different schools of theological thought, kind of agree on this. So think about this. Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So there it is, the wrath of God. We can't hide it. God has wrath. Now if you skip to verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Right? So here he is. He's saying, look at me, because in me you will find satisfaction. But we become futile in our thinking, and foolish hearts, our foolish hearts are darkened, claiming to be wise. We become fools, and we exchange the glory of the immortal God for other things either people or creations or things we make. 
And it says in verse 24, and, he, and Paul repeats it again afterwards, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. God gave them up. He lets go. Listen to Tim Keller talk about this giving up, right? He's talking about Galatians 6 where it says that uh, whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. This is what Tim Keller says. He says, this does not mean that God is a vengeful God sitting in heaven looking to avenge any slights or insults. The image of sowing reaping indicates that the process of moral consequences is much more natural and organic than that. Paul's reference to natural agriculture indicates that the moral universe, the fibers, if you will, has, a proce has processes. Sin against God sets up strains in the fabric of the moral spiritual universe. It's like we're tarnishing the universe when we sin in the moral fabric, not the physical one. Just as eating fatty foods sets up strains in the fabrical fabric of your heart, in the physical fabric of your heart, excuse me, if you sow seed poorly, you reap a poor crop. If you eat fatty foods, you reap a poor heart. If you give in to sinful nature, you reap spiritual breakdown and destruction. The word destruction can also be Helpfully be, uh, can helpfully be rendered corruption or disintegration. Paul is saying that sin makes things fall apart. The destruction we reap comes from the breaking of the fabric of the moral universe, just as certain behavior can break the fabric and coherence of the physical. That's Tim Keller. N.T. Wright says, Peep People suppose God's laws are arbitrary. They imagine that God has invented a set of rules to amuse himself and that he then enjoys the thought of punishing people if they don't keep them. Right? But to imagine that God, says N.T. Wright, and his laws are even remotely like that is itself part of the distorted thinking of which so much of the world has been guilty. The decrees of God are not that kind of thing at all. They are built into the fabric of creation itself. Evil behavior is inherently destructive. It points like a signpost towards death. Sin is like a virus within us. That's just the way God created the world. When we walk out of path, there is a spiritual consequence within the fabric of the universe and us. And the wrath of God is him saying, let go. Fine. I mean, you've been there with a family member that for some reason is persisting in a certain thing or a certain lifestyle and you're trying to hold it and you're like, fine, go. That's not the angry that we tend to think of God as. But that's exactly the angry, the wrath of God is God letting you go into, okay, I don't want you to reap what you're about to reap, but that's how it works. You're about to reap that because I created the world in such a way. You're going that way. I'm what provides you life. I'm what sustains you. I am what gives you what you need. And you've gone that way. You've distorted my worth. You've distorted reality, your worth, and who you are. You are, you know, desecrating the universe and yourself. That's the image of wrath of God. It's not the, aha, got you, you know, that's not the, that's not the image. 
sorry, I'm, I'm from Puerto Rico, so in Puerto Rico, that's how it is, you know. La chancleta, mom takes off la chancleta. Mira, bam. She's got, and she's got, she's got that aim, too. We call it puntería in, in Puerto Rico. You know, it's like I could be running right out the room, and it just lands. Bam. <laughs> so if that's not the case, what is God's disposition towards us as we walk through life when we sin? Is God just like, aha? Who better to tell us what God's view of us is when we sin than Jesus? Who better? Think about the prodigal son story with this I end. In Luke 15, it's not on the screen, but you can pull up Luke 15 because this is the image of wrath and love of God. This is the image. There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. There it is. Insisting on my way, I'm going to go my direction. Father, I'm leaving you, right? And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. So here I am taking my image-bearing person, of bearing the image of God with everything God has given me, right? By being his created son, now I walk out of that. I distort the fabric. I walk out of sonship, so to speak. Not many days later, the young son get, oh, excuse me, verse 14. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. Notice the father isn't smacking him. The spiritual consequences are smacking him. <laughs> so he went and hired himself out to be one of the citizens of the country who set him into his fields to feed pigs. Now, the imagery for Jewish people of pigs is like, that's gross, Right? And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. He ended up isolated alone. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. This is the best part. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. How is it that this guy saw his son the moment he was walking in the distance? Because the father was looking to the horizon for the return. That's the disposition of the father. It's not a, mira, te cogí. It's not that. It's like, I want you to come back. Because your sinful ways have taken you into destruction. Into lifelessness. Into inward corruption and corruption of the universe around you. I'm waiting for you to come home. That's the image of the father that Jesus gives us. He is waiting. When we sin, he waits. He wants us to come home. And this is for a person that's considered probably in the eyes of the Pharisees, this would have alluded to the tax collector or the prostitute or you name it. God is, it, it knows what wrath is. That person reaped wrath when he left his father's house. And what he ended up with, that was the wrath. 
But God wants us to come out of wrath. He wants us to come home. He wants, he's waiting, he's yearning to run to us, embrace us. He won't even let us finish our apology. He'll robe us. He'll celebrate. It's a feast. That is the image of God who is love and sometimes, or not sometimes, he has wrath. He relents, sometimes lets us go in our insisted way of sin. And we corrupt ourselves in the process, and that is the very wrath of God. But God isn't, uh, shame on you, go. God is looking, come back, son. Come back, daughter. Come back, son. Come back, daughter. I want to robe you. I want to throw you a feast. That's who God is. That's who God is. And can I just be real as the worship team comes back? I am still struggling with undoing the old image that I have. I'm still struggling. This is too good news, right? When Jesus preaches this image of the prodigal son returning to the father, I, this isn't the image of God that I have in my head, but I need to renew my mind. We all do. So let's, let's challenge ourselves to understand it. I'm not saying, look, don't take away the wrong message. I'm not saying that God doesn't have wrath towards sin. Yes. That's why he condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus. Right? There is wrath. But God is waiting for us to come home. He just wants to run and embrace us. Let's pray. Father, we humbly thank you for the radical love that embraces us despite what we've done. Thank you because all you want is for us to return. To turn away from sin, to turn towards you in repentance and devotion, faithfulness to you. And you robe us. You seat us in the heavenly realms. You call us son and daughter. Just like Jesus is your son, that's how we are seen as children.